The title of this morning's reading is A Violinist in the Metro. A man sat at the metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, it was calculated that thousands of people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace. He stopped for a few moments, and then he hurried up to meet his schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw the money in the till without stopping and continued to walk. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him. But the man looked at his watch and started to walk again. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother tugged him along, but the child stopped to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head toward the violinist the whole time. This action was repeated by several other children. All parents, without exception, forced them to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing, a silence took over, but no one noticed. No one applauded. There was not any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell one of the best musicians in the world. His violin, worth $3.5 million. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out the theater in Boston. Seats were about average $100. This is a real story. Joshua Bell played incognito in the metro station, and it was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and the priorities of people. The studies outlined were in a common place, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in unexpected moments. Here's a question to ponder for this new year. If we do not have a moment to stop and listen to the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things are we missing? It's my pleasure to introduce our favorite speaker that we get to hear his music his song, and his message every Sunday, a man who truly calls us to be present and in the moment, one of my favorite people in the world, the beloved Reverend Patrick Cameron. Thank you. Hey, good morning. That's so sweet. They told me, she did that at the first service as well, and they told me on the way out that my face was as red as my tie. I wasn't expecting it, so, and it was true, so thank you so much. So I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to stand up with me, we're going to sing a song and say a prayer.
In this very room There's quite enough love For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit Is in this very room In this very room In this very room I invite you to know with me in this moment There is a power In and through and as all of life In and through and as all of us And as we choose it, as we turn our thinking and our awareness to that power and presence, to that beauty, to that possibility, to that potential, we are shifted and changed. We are lifted up. We are transformed. So may we be mindful of that in this moment. May we ease into that. May we breathe into that. May we know that something is doing life through us like never before. And in the surrender, in in the humility, and in the welcome, and the joy, and the celebration of that welcome, Let us know that everything necessary for each and every one of us is called forth now, the right and perfect idea, the right and perfect opportunity, awareness, person, place, thing, whatever it may be. It is all the infinite in expression. So let us give thanks this day for that. Let us know that the words, the ideas, the music, the fellowship, and the consciousness that we step into as we come together on these these Sunday mornings of celebration allow us to be reminded of the truth of our being this community would not be the same if one of us was missing today. Each one is an intricate and beautiful tile of that mosaic that makes up the masterpiece. And so let us give thanks this day, knowing that that masterpiece continues to be reflected by means of each and every one of us as we continue this morning and throughout our week. For this I give thanks, and once again together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. So good morning. We have been having a discussion over, well, last week we began with, we're inspired by the first four chapters in our Science of Mind textbook. And this week is, is how it works. It's a very short chapter. It's only six pages. So if you want to not read a whole lot, read the second chapter in the textbook. And it's a wonderful articulation of our, our, our teaching. Dr. Holmes, Dr. Ernest Holmes, if you're here for the first time, we are, our core... Uh, teaching is the science of mind, which is really the idea that as we learn how to think, we learn how to live. It's it's that simple. And so our opportunity is to examine our lives, look at them. Our lives are really the the ledger, the journal of what we've been thinking up to this point. And so in that discussion, the discussion today, I'm going to share with you some ideas that I think are the the core of what we, we stand on. And as Dr. Holmes said, that, that our teaching is not the particular revelation of any one individual. It's, we don't have a, a prophet. We don't have a founder. We don't have a, one individual that we, we worship. We, we understand that divinity lives and moves and is and through all traditions, all of the prophets, all of the avatars, the great thinkers, the, the, the people that mind the depths of their own being over the course of their lifetime. And some wrote it down, some didn't write it down. So we honor all of them. 
But it's not that particular, it's not the revelation of one particular individual. It is the revelation of the culmination of all truth. And so that seems a bit broad for, for a few people. Some people like a little tighter box of which to operate from, but it really is the truth of our being, and it has been taught back into antiquity by various different teachers and various different people that have, that have uh, demonstrated that in their lives. And of course, the Jesus of Nazareth was one of those that uh, tremendously influenced Dr. Holmes. What Dr. Holmes had to say was that we take our good wherever we find it, we, wherever that may be. But as the, the reading said, we have to be aware of it. We have to see it. And we take it wherever we find it, and we make it our own insofar as we understand it. Take it wherever we find it, we make it our own insofar as we understand it. It's simple. A simple teaching. Good is universal. Good is another name for God, if you, if you like the G word. Some people like spirit, some people like beloved. But good is universal. It's everywhere present. And so our ability to incorporate our good and make it our own is what's important. So identifying our good and making it our own and using it in the best way we can. Now what happens for most of us is we, what's happened for the planet and for many people is we've misused this, this possibility and this potential. We've misused it in a way that creates lack and limitation and suffering, war, poverty, because those are, those are ideas as well. We have been given free dominion here on this planet to choose and live as we see fit. And there are enough people still alive on the planet that believe in those things. And so the more energy that we put into this idea of discord and disease and distress and evil, uh, we see it outpictured in our, on our experience. So that misuse of, of this divine principle, this thing that we stand upon, is, is, it's important to understand in our lives. I want to share with you, there's, there's one of the, the keys to this. Talking last week, I mentioned a couple weeks back, and I've been touching on it each week because I think it's so important, about practice. It takes 10,000 hours. This is inspired by Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, people that lie outside the uh, particular norm of, of culture. It takes 10,000 hours to master proficiency. Any proficiency, 10,000 hours. Genius doesn't just happen overnight. It's a commitment, it's a repetition, it's that, uh, Dr. Holmes used to say that, that, that our thought tendency, well, we're about the business here of mastering how we think is we create our lives, and our thought tendency is the, is the tool that we use. And so how do we master that? How do we, how do we master that proficiency? How do we learn how to think so our lives reflect the things that we want to experience? I was reminded this week of one of the people that's not written about in the book, but it's Tiger Woods. Now, Tiger, if you've ever, ever seen, Tiger was on television, and I remember being on Johnny Carson, hitting a golf ball when he was like three years old. Tiger's got his 10,000 hours in. Would you say? I think Tiger probably has 20,000 hours in. But isn't it interesting, too? It's 10,000 10, hours. It's 10,000 steps a day to stay healthy. Walking, whatever it may be. 10,000 steps a day, 10,000 hours to master proficiency. So 10,000 is kind of a, a, a good number to keep in mind. I mean, Tiger, he, he walks, stands up and hits the ball as hard as he can hit it with beautiful form, beautiful balance, drives it for the most part straight down the fairway. Now, if I get up to the ball, because I've got my 100 hours in, and I hit it as hard as I can with as much balance as I can muster, I'm typically asking Laura if it's hit any cars in the parking lot, if I've broken a windshield, or if I've damaged anybody's driver's side or passenger side door, depending on how they park. And then I usually cuss and swear a little bit, but I don't use any of the real profanities. I say, gee whiz, and gosh darn it, of course. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that I, that I go to frustration when that happens? 
I typically don't do that. I mean, I've made peace with my golf game a long time ago. I said, you know, I'm not going to let the way I play ruin my afternoon. That's just the way. That's my agreement. I did quit for about 10 years because it bothered me so much to play so inconsistently. But the point being is there's 10,000 hours invested in this, and so practice is important. And one of the, the five enemies of perseverance, the first one, I'm going to share five of them with you today. The first one is this lifelong habit of quitting. It's too hard. I've meditated now for three weeks and nothing's happened. I still owe money. I've, had, I've taken two science of mind classes and my life's still not working. This stuff doesn't work. And, and all you can say to that is, and so it is. <laughs> what most successful people understand, and I think this is just a healthy attitude. I remember trying to teach my son how to play. I wanted to get him involved with a sport. I grew up with love sports, very active with sports and athletics. I tried to teach him a number, soccer, softball, baseball, a number of other things. And he just wasn't interested. He didn't want to learn any, not interested in sports at all. It wasn't his thing. So we put that aside and he found his other interests, but it wasn't sports. But, so, and that was fine. We weren't going to force him to, to play a sport he didn't want to play. But the point is that this lifelong pattern of quitting is what, for many of us, uh, seeps into our experience. And successful people understand that you may not succeed the first time. I was calling Ke uh, Kelsey Cayley at the first service, but she just ignored me. But I would imagine that you've probably picked up the guitar and played it more than just this morning. Yeah, 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 that's obvious. But for, that, that it takes more than one time, typically. There's a story of a little boy, and his father said, I'll tell you what, if you go along with me today, I'm going to run a bunch of errands, and you, you go along with me today, and if you're really good, if you're good all day long, I'll get you ice cream at the end of, you know, at the, end of the errands. And so he's all excited, and he, he sits there with Grandpa, and they go to the first destination, and they take care of the task, and then they go to the second destination, and they take care of the task, and they go to on and on and on, and so pretty soon it's early afternoon, and they're getting close to the end, and, and Grandpa says to his grandson, how you doing? He says, well, I'm... I think I'm doing okay, but he said, I don't know how, how good I can be for how long. <laughs> Isn't it interesting when we start to, because if he hadn't said that and little, just let the little boy sit there, there would have been no expectation created. There wouldn't have been any of this, this, this sort of anxiety around having to be good. What does good look like? Because we're good now. This morning, you're good. I mean, I don't know how you behaved on the way over here, but right now, you're good. <laughs> But we are, we're all good. There's a, there's a grace, and good is just another word for God. Good is that grace, that divine state of grace that all of us live in or have the opportunity to live in. But we get these ideas about how we have to show up. We have to earn it. We have to earn it. And so this lifelong pattern of quitting does not support oneself in being successful. The next enemy of perseverance I'll think of it in a moment. That life should be, forgetting, that life should be easy. That life should be easy, that's right, that life should be easy. Thank you so much. Forgetting, there it is. What am I being, per, what am I persevering? That life should be easy, that we think it should all be easy. See, we always talk about this idea of clarity, focus, ease, and grace, which is Maria Nima's definition for success. But life isn't easy, it requires effort. 
If there is an effort required, you're probably not trying very hard. It all requires effort. But to be in the effort in the ease is where the ease comes in. To be able to be in whatever you're doing with ease. And that's, that's practice. That's proficiency. Mother, wanted, mother and father, the daughter, wanted to take violin lessons. And so the, the mother and dad talk it over and finally say, Okay, fine. We're going to go get you a violin. We'll sign you up for lessons. So they go down to the music store and they get, pick out a violin. And they set the schedule up for lessons. And they're on the way home in the car. And the mother looks at the little girl and she says, now you know, you really need to practice. Your dad and I talked this over, we've put the money out, this is important, but you really need to hold up your end of the bargain, you need to practice, you need to... And there's going to be times when you don't want to practice, there's going to be times when you quit, when it's just too hard to keep going, and you've got to keep going, do you understand? The little girl didn't say a word, and finally she said, well, yeah, kind of like you being married to dad, right? But it requires effort. It's not easy. And, I, and this practice, living life is not an easy thing. Have you noticed? Has anyone here ever had a problem or struggled with anything? Disappointment? Planned on something? A plan didn't work out? Something ended? Something changed? See, the only consistent in life is change. And taxes, I guess. Change. Throw taxes in, too. But, so there's change. There's change that goes on. And the third enemy, the, the third enemy of it is that that success becomes a destination. The third enemy of perseverance is success is a destination. We achieve a certain level, we get to a certain point, and we decide, I've made it. There's, a, there's an entrepreneur by the name of Lester uh, Warner. And he was, they were interviewing him one day, and he has been very, very successful. He was one of the first people to develop and market artificial turf. So they, you know, a lot of fields, if you go over to the U of A and uh, foot field there, their field is that artificial turf. Well, he was one of the innovators of that, and he took that and he developed a lot of other things. So he's very wealthy and very uh, successful. And they asked him, what happened when you finally felt like you made it? And he said, well, you know what? All of the skills and all the tools I was using to, to get to that point, I put them down because I thought I'd made it. And he said, I realized after a period of time that I had to pick them back up. There was, there was more to do. And they said to him, well, how did, you, how did you do that? And he said, well, what I did was I realized I needed to celebrate. It's important to celebrate. When we, have a, when we have a success, when we've reached a milestone, if you're here next week with us, we're going to have our, our uh, celebration for our practitioners. We have a, a practitioner class that graduated about six months ago, and we're going to have um, uh, Linda Watson with us. She's from the Agape Center, Dr. Michael Beckwith, and she was one of the original members. She's an amazing practitioner. We had her here with her, our, us last year. But we're going to have a celebration. We're going to have a short ceremony during service to celebrate our practitioners. I think we're doing it at 11.30, right? 11.30 service. But we need to celebrate that. But Lester said, I celebrated it, and then what I do is I close the door on that past success. I just simply close the door on that past success. Because that was then and this is now. And I think that that's important for us to remember. Otherwise, we fall into complacency. I already made it. It's easy. Yeah, I got it done. I'm done. You know what happens when fruit gets ripe and you don't pick it? It starts to rot. And I think it's an example of what can happen in our own lives if we don't continue to move on, if we don't continue to, to, to um, uh, tap into that, those divine gifts. See, we're here to express. We're here to do this work. There's a divine discontent that runs through all of us. And we're here to do that. And the, and the only time it stops is when we stop, when we stop being open and receptive to that possibility, to that potential. So it's important to keep going. The fourth one is resiliency. The fourth enemy of perseverance is the lack of resiliency. We've got to be resilient. 
We've got to show up and we've got to do the work and, and do the work and continue to do the work. And, and slowly those changes take place. Many times you'll hear me say that our, our work, this teaching, if you work it, if you work our, our teaching, it's, it's gradual, it's sequential, but it's inevitable. It's gradual, sequential, inevitable. In other words, the only reason that you won't eventually bring into manifestation the things you're seeking to bring into manifestation is just simply that the resiliency isn't there. I'm reminded of a twig. Have you ever pulled up a, a brand new, pulled a twig off of a tree and it's healthy and it's vibrant? You can, you can tie that twig into a knot. You can, make a, you can do anything with it and not break it. And yet if, we, if we, we lose that resiliency, then we get dry and brittle and hard. And as soon as we try to tr tie it into a knot, it breaks. And so for so many people, they become dry and brittle and hard. They've lost that resiliency. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln that I was reading this week, and I thought of the resiliency that he demonstrated. Lincoln, when Lincoln and Mary Todd were in the White House, he was an amazing man. This man was not just a political leader, he was a spiritual leader. He came along at a time when there was such changes going on in the planet. And I think that I, I, I just sense in terms of what's happening politically on the planet right now that that, that consciousness is reemerging. See, really about, see, we're here to have this conversation, but I don't realize, I think sometimes we forget the, the, what's happening globally. As we have the conversation, is there is a place for you to say yes to an idea that may, that may have a home in you? Where two or more are in agreement, it is done. And that is powerful. And that stretches across the globe. And there are things happening on this planet right now that I think are so uh, congruent with what happened when Abraham Lincoln was president. So Lincoln is president, and they have a 10-year-old son. He and Mary Todd have a 10-year-old son, Willie. And Willie dies, and it devastates him. He is absolutely devastated, and she's just beside herself. They suspect that Willie probably got into the, we used to be called the Washington, uh, the Washington Canal. The Washington Canal was a place where they would take dead horses and throw them. They would throw all their trash in there. And, of course, the kids would swim in there because we didn't understand hygiene at the level we do today. Anyway, Willie passed away, and they were just in mourning and, and grieving. And so to, to relieve some of the pressure, Mary Todd insisted that they, they get out of the White House, to get out of Washington for a while. So to give you a perspective on what that looked like, they, they, went, they took their carriage, and in the summer months, they would go stay at the soldier's home. The soldier's home was three miles north of Washington, D.C., and at the soldier home, it was the veterans from the War of 1812. Now, we're in the 1850s now, so these are some older fellas. And most of them are missing limbs, and they sit around and they play checkers all day long. But Mary Todd and Lincoln went out there, and they spent their time there, just to get away from the pressures and to be, to be in that environment. What was also happening there is he could look off and he could see the Capitol building being built. It wasn't quite done. And it reminded him daily, part of his meditation was to look out and he'd see that Capitol building and he realized how delicate this thing called democracy was. That if this country, the United States, did not come together as one with that civil war, because this is what was happening, this civil war, the democracy, this great experiment called democracy would fail. And so he had, he, he had that going on. He had the death of Willie going on. He couldn't sleep, so at night, he would walk out into the cemetery, which is now Arlington Cemetery, and all the, the tombstones of all the soldiers that had died in the War of 1812 and some that had already died in the Civil War were there. He would walk amongst them. In addition to that, he had all of the 
He had all of the, the freed slaves from the District of Columbia because they had abolished slavery already. But we, think, we forget about that. At least I forget about it. There were, where did these people go? Where do you, if you free the slaves, and where do they go? Because they don't have homes. They don't have a place to go. So here this whole grounds was littered with people that were just there looking for the next place to go. He was in the midst of it. He was in the midst of his grief and his sorrow. He had all these things going on. And it would have been easy for him to say, I can't do this. I quit. It would have been easy to say, you know, this was supposed to be easy. When they asked me to be president, it should have been easy. It wasn't easy. He'd had some successes. He, of course, had been a senator, and he'd been successful in his life. He, you know, if you know his story, he learned law late in the evening. The story's about him reading books by candlelight. He'd had successes in his life. He could have said, this is enough. Someone else can do that. But he, had a, he was called to a bigger vision. He was called to uh, an idea, and he said when people asked him about this, because there was tremendous pressure in addition to all the things that were going on in his environment, everything that he was exposed to, he had people that were just badgering him and badgering him that they ne he needed to abolish slavery universally. He hadn't done that yet, and throughout the country. And he hadn't done it because he knew it wasn't time. He had another group of people that were just hounding him to punish the South. Let's go down there and annihilate them. Let us just get rid of these people. And he, he was able to hold all of this and feel all this and not fall into one of those traps. Let's get it done. You know, for all of us, when things happen in our lives, typically what happens when life goes sideways, when we're unhappy, we want it over. We want it over right now. Let's fix it now. And I truly believe that when things are going sideways in our lives, when things are, when, when the relationship ends, when the job ends, when the career takes a, a turn for the worse, when the health starts to deteriorate, we have all these challenges. We have done enough spiritual work. We have done enough spiritual work that, that those skills and qualities and attributes and gifts that we have need that honing and that sharpening so that we're, because we're ready now for the next experience. That's why we bring these things into our lives. Nobody's, nobody asks to be fired. No one uh, requests going through a divorce or the breakup of a, a relationship or the death of a loved one, that beautiful song that Kelsey sang. Nobody asks for that. But that's part of life. That's part of the human condition. Now this young man that made his transition that she sang about, he's been, he's been greeted into a new incarnation. He's been greeted with loving hands and a new experience. And yet those of us that, that loved him and are left behind, whether it's this young man or someone that I've known personally, closely, it, it helps hone us and prepare us for the new experience. So if you're struggling, if you're challenged in your life right now, it in so many ways is such a powerful gift to step up your game. But if you quit, it's never going to happen. If you think it's easy and you're indignant that life is so hard, it's never going to happen. That, that you've reached a certain level of success, hey, forget it. This resiliency. I want to I share with you a quote from Mark Nepo's book, being, Facing the Lion, Being the Lion. He inspired this story about Lincoln today, and he had this to say about him. And I, I, I want to read this because I think it, it's beautiful. He said, Lincoln demonstrated a hard but beautiful truth that receiving our full hum humanity, receiving our full humanity, not denying it or blocking it, we can do that with our teaching. We can use affirmative prayer as a form of denial. That's not what it's intended for. It's important for us to have the strength and the character of being and the qualities to feel what it is that's going on for us. And as we stand with that and feel that, I'll tell you what, there's a strength that'll emerge and it'll come from places you won't even imagine.
That's been my experience when I watch people truly walk this path of truth and integrity and to be honest with oneself, to love what is and say, you know what, this too is God and this too is good and this too is for me. That was Mary, that was Mary um, Emma Curtis Hopkins' affirmation. Whatever happened in her life, this is for good, this is for God and this is for me. Didn't matter what was happening because she knew she was on a journey. She knew that something wonderful and powerful wanted to have expression by means of her. It is the climbing that brings us to the view of the ages. See, Lincoln had to go through this. Lincoln had to go through all those things to hold the vision for a country. If democracy had failed, what would it look like? I don't know, but it's the highest form of governmental freedom we have on the planet. And it's hard. Democracy is hard because it is fraught with freedom. And people abuse it because they don't understand it. And then they start to become their self-interest. And that has to end now. Financially, it has to end in the, in the United States all these special interests. It's one people, it's one soil, as Lincoln said. For being, for being fully human opens up the eternal. When we're in our humanity, we are the eternal. That is spiritual practice. Through the strength of that vulnerability, he had the resolve to apply that vision with compassion in all directions. And this was the example of spiritual leadership that we have rarely seen. So the war was over, and the South surrendered. This is about three days before he was assassinated. And he told the generals, he said, let these men go home with their rifles. They need them to hunt. They need them to take care of their families. He didn't disarm them. He said, this war is over, and I'm, we're not going to punish one another anymore. I mean, and, there were, and, and in our smallness, there's reasons if your brother, or your mother, or your sister, your home's been burned, everything you own is taken, there's good reasons in our humanity to say we need to punish them. This was wrong. And yet he just said, we need to stop. We need to stop this fighting. And I think it's such a wonderful example for us in our own lives. We watch what's going on in Israel right now. This consciousness needs to step up in that environment. It has gone on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I was just watched a show on television a month ago, and it said that really the, 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 the current Isra Israelis come from the same lineage. They now know that they came out of the villages. They just simply left the, the towns, the Palestinian towns, and moved out into the country. They're brothers and sisters. We're all brothers and sisters in this. So I think it's important because what happens globally is happening locally for us. Where the war is going on within us, where we were, we're seeking the revenge and, the, and the, the, the competition to hurt someone or someone's got something. Someone having something doesn't take anything away from you. They have it by right of consciousness. You're good. You know, I've asked people many, many times, how little should I have so that you feel good about me? If me giving away everything I own will, will empower and bless you, let me know about that. That hasn't been my experience. I know that the greater good and the greater conscious we are, it allows us to be more potent and powerful on this planet. To stand in our prosperity, to stand in our abundance, to stand in our health, to stand in our clarity. We're a gift wherever we go. The invitations are rolling in, man, because they can't get enough of you because you're irresistible. But when you're miserable and brittle and broken and hard, I bet you're not getting any invitations at all. People see you coming down the street, they're probably running around the corner. Here they come. 
But it's, it's such a great conversation to have. It's such an exciting thing to be alive. This is our opportunity. This is our possibility this day. And so when we see the things happening in Israel, I just know that we are giving birth. This too is for good. This is for God. And this is for me. We are giving birth to a new consciousness. And this struggle and chaos is giving birth to that. And then to bless and honor and do what we can do in our own lives to stop the war within us. I think it's just, it's our opportunity. When we use the spiritual practice effectively, as Dr. Holmes said, it's simple. How much more good can you let into your life this day than you did yesterday? How much good can you let in this day as opposed to yesterday? It's simple. We forget sometimes. And it's okay if we forget. It's our human experience. That's why we come back together Sundays to remind one another. Take a bit of this with you. I used to come on a Sunday, and by the time I got to my car, first time I came, I couldn't remember a thing was said. It's right back into it, and slowly it started to become part of me. But I had to expose myself. I had to start putting my 10,000 hours in. I started having to do the practice. And now my practice is more a part of me than ever before. But I'm on the journey just like you. Someone said to me last week, you know, we were talking, and they said, well, you know, I, I finally did my forgiveness work, and it's easy for you, you know, it's, not, it's easy for you to do forgiveness. I didn't say anything, and I thought, ha, ha, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think any of it's easy if it's true forgiveness. What I, I can say to that is I just know right away it's my opportunity to do that. Because what I know is I'm not wasting any more energy on that. Put it down, put it down, put it down. Jesus said forgive seven times 70. He meant a lot. He meant a lot of times. <laughs> a lot of times. Whatever it takes. Forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others. So let's let a little more good into our lives today than we did yesterday. You know, by the end of the week, who knows what it will look like. But that's why we're here. To relax into that, we're not in this alone. We are in co-creation. Our spiritual practice should keep reminding us of that. Your spiritual practice is stale if you've done it too long and you're not even thinking about it anymore. Like the people walking through the metro. Find a different spiritual practice. Get your 10,000 steps in a day. Get your 10,000 hours in. You're going to be doing it anyway. Let's just do it with clarity, focus, ease, and grace. Blessings, so it is. Vision. Five is vision. Sorry. Thank you for reminding me. Forgetting and vision are there. Five, and, and five, number five is vision. In fact, in fact, I've got a little story around that. This amateur golfer is playing with Sam Sneed one day. Now, Sam Sneed, when he played, was the Tiger Woods of his day. And he goes out and this kid is so excited. Here's Sam Sneed and he's going to play around the golf with Sam Sneed. So they tee off and they get on the first hole. Watch Sam and Sam takes a seven on the first par four. And he's like, wow. So Sam picks his ball up and they're walking over to the second tee. And the kid says, excuse me, Mr. Sneed. He goes, yes. He said, uh, you just took a seven on the first hole. He goes, yeah. He said, well, aren't you upset? He goes, no, there's 17 more holes. So why don't we play a whole round? He said, by the end of the round, Sam Sneed was four under par. But see, for all of us, we, we play the one hole think that's it. In fact, if I got a seven on the first hole, I'd be happy. <laughs> it's a vision. It's, it's that higher vision. It's that vision that, that, that Lincoln had for his life. What is the bigger truth that is seeking expression by means of you, by means of me? And that requires listening. It requires paying attention. It requires spiritual mindfulness and living a life of mindfulness. Each day getting up and saying, how am I going to show up in the world? Who do I want to be today? Despite what has happened in the past, who am I going to be today? 
to be joyous, happy, and free, abundant, to be a magnet for greater good in your life. There are people living their lives like that. We're reading about them. They're in People Magazine. We need to get more people in here in People Magazine, in my opinion. So let's do that this week. Let's move forward with that clarity, focus, ease, and grace. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And know that something powerful and wonderful is being given birth to each time we turn our attention to that. Blessings.